You're listening to Binary. Welcome to Binary. My name is Simon Dingle. I'm so excited. I've been hunting for a sound for ages. I didn't think I was going to find it, but I eventually found it on some obscure uh, sound repository website type place. Take a listen to this. That noise, frankly, is the sound of an ENIAC computer, circa 1946. The ENIAC was a milestone because it was the first Turing-complete digital computer. And it said that in its first 90 hours after being turned on, it computed more information than had been gathered in all of human civilization until that point. I mean, think about it. We discovered writing about 6,000 years ago. We had the great libraries of Constantinople and Alexandria. And the ENIAC was like, whatever, guys. Give me four days and I can think about all of that stuff. It was remarkable. It was also massive. It, you know, filled an entire room. But it started a cycle that much later we identified as Moore's Law, with computers getting smaller, cheaper. You've heard it all before, right? You now have something in your pocket that's thousands of times faster than supercomputers were 20 years ago and blah, blah, blah. But computers have gotten so small that we can now pack them into something that fits on your wrist, which is just bananas. And of course, most recently, we've seen the Apple Watch starting to make its way onto wrists all over the world. So in this episode of Binary, we're talking all about wearable computers. Is it as significant to the world of computing as the smartphone was? Do you want an Apple Watch? Do you have one already? Should you want one? These are the things we'll ponder in this episode. So one of the first people I called up to ask about the Apple Watch was my friend Tom Merritt, who hosts the Daily Tech News Show. Good morning or evening. (laughs) Tom had been wearing an Apple Watch for about a week when we spoke, so I wanted to get his fresh off-the-bat insights into what it was like with this new piece of technology on his arm. I got it, uh, let's see, so I I got it uh, five days ago, I guess, so so close to a week. and it came late at night. So at, at first, it was pretty much me trying to find any other friends that I knew who had it and sending each other stupid uh, doodles and uh, heartbeats and, and all of the, the weird things it can do. But over the weekend, I, I tried to use it the way that I think people expect it to be used. So I, you know, it was tracking my activity. Uh, when I went for a run, I, I used the workout app part of it. I used it to start and stop things uh, on my phone. I even used it to go to go to the movies uh, and, and a QR code served as my ticket uh, to get in to see a movie. Uh, overall, I mean, my, my, my big thing so far is that it seems like an incremental improvement, like a, a very marginal improvement where every once in a while I don't have to take my phone out to do something or it alerts me of something in a way that is less obtrusive. So that, for instance, there was a news alert uh, this morning and it just popped up on my watch. I glanced at it, got the news. That was it. Uh, it is good at that sort of thing. I don't know if it's $350 good at that sort of thing. Mm. The interesting thing to me is it's it feels like um, deja vu for when we first saw the iPhone. People mm-hmm. liked people liked the story Apple was telling because they're really great at telling a story. Um, but when it came to the actual use cases, people were kind of like, yeah, it's it's kind of better than my Nokia that I'm used to. I can sort of see where this is going, but you know, the Gen One of the iPhone is not it. Do you get the same sense about the the Apple Watch, or or do you think it's it's going to maintain its mere worthiness through the second generation? I I do get that same feeling of not knowing exactly 
what it's good for, but but knowing it's the first attempt, uh, I totally agree with you. It has that feel. And I remember that first iPhone, you couldn't add apps to it. So you would get to a point where you wanted to play with it more, but there wasn't anything else to do with it. The mm. differences are that I think everybody knew what a smartphone could possibly be. And that was because we had Trios and Nokias and Blackberries out there. Uh, mm. I don't think there is the equivalent in watches yet. I mean, the Pebble's very good. Uh, the, the, the Android Wear watches are interesting and can do a lot of the same things. But whereas everyone was clear what they wanted a phone to do, I'm not sure if people are clear what they want a watch to do. Now, I'm not a big smartwatch fan or a big watch wearer, so, so people who are may disagree with me there. But it's not as clear what the way forward is. And the iPhone, at least, you got it immediately. Once you picked it up, you knew exactly how to use it. The watch has a learning curve. That's the other side of it is it took me a day, maybe a day and a half to really feel comfortable knowing where everything was and how to access everything. Mm. The, the interesting thing to me is is the smartphone feels a little bit like Pac-Man just gobbling up everything else in its environment, right? So it destroyed the market for bedside alarm clocks, for standalone GPS units, for pocket cameras, etc. And one of the things it took away from me that I really liked was it took that watch off of my wrist and it something just feels backwards mm. about putting it back. Um, the, the one thing I will say though is that you know the Fitbits and jawbones of the world have convinced me to put something on my wrist again because I can sort of see the benefits of health tracking that you could only do on the wrist. Uh, you know, it, it far more um, with 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 a, gr a better data set and a broader data set than you can with something that lives in your pocket or on a table. So I guess if they can crack the health stuff, there's some there's some interesting use cases there. Yeah, and I will say that's been nice being able to uh, be on a run and look down and, and see my progress, uh, be able to you know stop the run at the end without having to pull the phone out. But the fact is I, I still carried the phone because I was using the Nike and the RunKeeper apps and they don't work unless you have the phone around. So uh, I, those are the kinds of things where it goes back to your comparison to the early iPhone where they will probably get better at that in future generations, and that won't mm -hmm. be the main issue. I, I you, what, Something you said just now uh, made me think that we're probably also not going to see the final form factor here. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Apple or other manufacturers start coming out with better form factors that aren't watch-based. Uh, the same mm. way, you, you remember, uh, the early cell phones all mimicked the look of a traditional landline, right? They, they had the curved sides and, and, and they were big and meant to be held up uh, to, to your ears. And of course, as we learned what cell phones were good for and later smartphones, we changed those form factors. I, I think that we may see alternatives to wrist wearables that still do a lot of these functions because uh -huh. the di the difference is the phone was replacing other things. It was replacing your music player. It was replacing your phone. It was replacing your GPS. The watch is merely extending functionality. It's not really replacing anything. Mm. So, so then maybe I should ask you to take off your hat for a moment as a tech pundit and put on your hat as a science fiction author and glance uh -huh. 10 years into the future for us. And are we still wearing watches at that point? Or will I finally have my ocular implant or something better? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, like you said, taking off the, the tech pundit and just going full sci-fi. <laughs> I don't want to have to put anything on. Uh, I just want to see it. 
and I want to mm. see it when I think I need to see it. And that's where, where things like augmented reality start to become a more attractive option. Because if I can have a very lightweight thing on my head that projects the things that I need to see in front of me in a way that's easy to react with. I mean, there's there's issues of, of physical interaction, right? We always want haptics and taptics uh, because there's a reason we like physical force feedback. But if you can get beyond that, uh, mm. not having to attach anything to you and just maybe having a really lightweight implant or something that just rests on the ear and can deliver all your information uh, right into your eye or your ears if, if you're visually impaired, uh, I, I think is much more appealing because I don't have to maintain anything and I want an artificial intelligence that knows like, oh, you need to know this, you're thinking about this, you're doing a workout so you want to know this information and anticipates before I even choose. Mm, it's, what you're describing sounds a lot like the trajectory for Google. I'm wondering if the renaissance of Google Glass won't be the definitive wearable, at least in the next 10 years. Or Magic Leap, right? That's the other one that's yeah, right there. Yeah. Google Glass and Magic Leap are both headed down that road. And I guess to a lesser extent, some of the virtual reality headsets could, could pivot that direction as well. And I'm wondering if, if Apple can, um, you know, continue their foray into, into cloud services um, convincingly enough to remain relevant in, in that market. Because it just seems to me that when, when you come to the contextual computing bits and pieces that you need for this future we've just imagined, Google are just streets ahead. Yeah, although Google has a hard time getting people to use their developments. Uh, and, and, and that was a, a, the big issue with Google Glass. I think some people mistakenly think it was a failure. I don't think it was a failure as a product at all. I think it was a failure of marketing. Mm. Uh, and, and Google has had that problem where, and I, I think very smartly with Android, they let others do the marketing for them. Uh, but when they do the marketing themselves, a lot of times the message gets muddled. So I, I wonder sometimes if Google ends up creating a platform or Google gets lapped by a company that's more focused and, and better at delivering a message. One of the reasons I love chatting to Tom about this stuff is because besides for his excellent daily tech news podcast, he's also an author. And in writing fiction, and especially science fiction, Tom spends a lot of time imagining not just what the technology is and what it does, but what it means for humanity and what that might evolve into in the future. One of the things that I find interesting about wearables, for example, is the social cues and the changes to the social contract that they present. People didn't like Google Glass because you were sticking a camera in their face. They don't like you having a smartphone in a meeting because you look down at it even if you're using it to take notes about that meeting weirdly they don't care if you're looking at your notebook at the same time because that's an accepted part of the social contract now with watches of course things are a little bit different because looking at your wrist doesn't mean i'm taking notes or i'm doing something that helps this meeting it usually means i'm bored so how do these devices we're strapping to ourselves now change the social contract uh, I think it is one of the things that people may not have expected to come out of this is the social cue of looking at your watch uh, indicating that you're bored. And, mm. and you're right, mm. that doesn't necessarily have to continue. Like we could, we could adapt our view of that and start to understand. But 
it is it is something where I, I feel like the original promise of the watch was, oh, well, you don't have to take your phone out, so it'll be less rude, it'll be less intrusive. And I think in a lot of cases it is, but right. if you are in a meeting or you're discussing something with something with someone and your watch you know, gives you a couple of bumps letting you know something's going on, you don't know what it is until you look. And as soon as you look down, that person you've been talking to thinks, oh, he's bored. Whether yeah. they, involuntarily, right? Uh, so yeah. it's it's it really does have to overcome that social cue in a lot of circumstances. Yeah, you know, actually, while you're talking, I'm thinking of, of the public speaking things that I do when I'm up on a stage at a conference, for example, and one of my pet hates is looking down at the crowd of people staring at their phones. But you're right, people staring at their, at their wrists is actually kind of even worse because then they're really bored. You know, yeah, at least exactly. on their phones, they could they could be doing something useful with the information you're giving them. <laughs> if they're looking at their wrists, that doesn't feel so good. No, it doesn't. And, and, it, and it's not even a logical thing. Even if you know, like, okay, I'm looking at someone wearing an Apple Watch. They've obviously gotten some kind of notification and they're just checking it. It still just feels like, oh, okay, they need to go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they need to get it out. Of uh, and maybe we'll get over that. Maybe we'll change that. I don't know. Be sure to check out Tom's podcast, The Daily Tech News Show. It's available on iTunes, or you can just Google it or check out his website at tommerritt.com. So next up, I spoke to somebody who's been dealing with wearable computers for a lot longer than a week. He's an Android user, so of course, he's been able to get the watches that are now in their second or third generation, depending who you speak to about uh, Android Wear, which is the operating system they run. He's Rich Mulholland. He's the author of the book Legacide. He's also got a bunch of businesses he's involved in. He started Missing Link uh, and a couple of others. He's a prolific public speaker, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about design and innovation uh, and the way we think about new technologies and apply them to business more importantly. Rich was on the speaking circuit and traveling when I spoke to him, so I had to Skype him in his hotel room. It seems to be a bit of a a theme with us because the first time I met Rich or really got to know him, we were both in Japan at a conference, and the very first thing we spoke about was about how rude people were uh, staring at their devices while other people were speaking to them. Anyway, Rich told me about his LG uh, smartwatch that he wears and how it's starting to slowly become indispensable. But the first thing I wanted to chat to him about, of course, was the social cues, the social contract, the things that we had started discussing in Japan in 2008. If I'm in a meeting with somebody and I see them glance briefly at their wrist, I know that that is the social cue for, listen, dude, how much longer are we still going to be because uh, uh, I've, I've got, you know, I have to go. And then I say, oh, I'm sorry, and we'll, and we'll move on. If I see somebody stare intently at their wrist, use their finger and tap it, then they've immediately transported me from a guy checking the time to a guy checking his phone. The phone has simply become a proxy. And it's the difference between a one-second glance and a one-minute interaction. And you know what the other thing is that I find in a meeting? So let's say you're holding your phone towards you and your phone lights up and there's a notification. There's a chance that you've seen it and they haven't. If it's your watch, if you imagine how you're sitting facing somebody it is them that sees, they see the watch flash and you uh, feel the watch vibrate simultaneously. So everybody knows what's going on. Now, you do have a thing called, do not, at least on, the, on uh, Android Wear, you have a thing called, obviously, do not disturb where, uh, where, where you can say only do notifications like I can set for, if there's anything to do with my wife or kids, I can set a notification or say, okay, if they call, come up, but if anybody else calls, don't. The problem is for me right now, I have to set that manually. Uh, because Google owns my calendar, I find that quite frustrating. I would simply like to say, do me a favor, and if you know that I'm in a meeting, don't interrupt me. And as soon as you know I've come out of a meeting, you can interrupt me again. Incidentally, this would have a huge benefit to me because my meetings forever go over. 
And if I had a way that all of a sudden my phone started vibrating, I would know that I was supposed to, I, it would be my cue to say, this meeting is over and I've got to, sorry, if my watch started vibrating and I've got to get up and go. Yeah, notifications. We've got way too many of them in our life, it feels like. And I, I think the only way to really deal with it is to go in and app by app uh, decide who's allowed to ping you and for what. Like if there's an urgent WhatsApp message from somebody close to me, I want to know about that. But what I really don't want is some game telling me that I've run out of gems and I need to go and buy more or, you know, you get the idea. Notifications are a challenge. I think it's one of the things that we need to solve. Right. So my, my uh, default notification for everything is off. And then, and then I manually will go through internal ones <clears throat> that I would like to use, much like you. You're right, this notification overload, is, it, it's really bad, especially on Android. I think it's much uh, worse than on Apple because on Android, I actually use that notification bar. That's basically my operating system. So notifications are one thing where wearable computers might be able to help us with the problem, although it doesn't feel like they're doing that just yet. In fact, it doesn't feel like they're doing anything just yet. I don't really get the sense speaking to like Tom Merritt or yourself that this is something that I really need. It doesn't feel like a finished product. It doesn't feel like something that warrants my attention just yet. I'm almost shocked to hear you say that. I find it's just so, no, but really, and I, I certainly, I mean, I'm sitting here staring at an iPad uh, and my phone, so I, I'm still kind of stretched across both platforms. But I think this thing is really, really, I mean, I was blown away. I bought it as a complete novelty. I had no idea that it would, uh, would transcend into utility as quickly as it had. I think that the uh, interface is elegant. I think that it does just what it needs to do. There's one little thing I would, I would change on it. But otherwise, I mean, as it stands right now, and I know this is a, a silly thing to say because it's going to get so much better, but it kind of does everything I wish it would do. The one exception is that when I talk to it, instead of it using Google's voice recognition to turn my voice into text, I would far rather I could just reply to somebody with a little voice note. Other than that, there's not too much I want it to do. Uh, I mean, small little things, like I'd like it to have vibration control uh, to tell me which direction to turn, rather than just have it visually for, as a motorcyclist, uh, the turn by turn, you know, I can still see where I'm going, but it's, uh, it would be nicer if it was just something I could feel. But small little, almost app-based tweaks. But as for the operating system itself, it's pretty robust. Okay, so now I want an Android Wear so I can try it out. You've sold me on that much. But besides notifications and uh, you mentioned navigation, uh, what are some of the other killer apps? What are the reasons that you want to have this thing on your wrist all day? Okay, so it certainly doesn't, uh, the only reason it has to be on my wrist all day at the moment is because uh, it still has such a novelty pool that uh, people will look at it, glance at it, and ask me about it. All right, so that is the killer app at the moment, and that's something that's obviously going to fade with time. It's still nice to have something on you that everybody else wants to see and know about. So on every airplane, people are always asking me about it and things like that. And that does provide some degree of social value. The other thing for me, in terms of an application that I use a lot, killing off messages and things that I don't want to have to check later. So you get a notification, one quick swipe and a tap, and you've archived your mail. So you're just, you're just plowing through things. So when you actually do sit down in front of your inbox, so much stuff, you've just replied to a WhatsApp with a little smiley face, you've archived an email that you didn't need to be part of, or read through a mail and replied with a thumbs up, or even a short little voice message. Things like that allow you to really, really tackle things that by the time you sit down in front of your computer, I reckon I've probably got through 25% of of uh, my messages, I've removed them, and, and more importantly, 
uh, I've removed the ones that need to be removed. I've got through my junk, so to speak. So, of course, one of the reasons I was so keen to chat to Rich for this episode is because he wrote the book Legacide. And Legacide is a fascinating concept in itself because it's all about how hanging on to the past kind of keeps us away from all of the awesomeness in the future. One of the examples Rich often talks about is how the old format of vinyl records kind of created the idea of an album and how many tracks should be on an album and really set the pace for the music industry for far longer than it should have. So if we look at wearable computers and whether they're smartwatches or something that you put on your face, how useful is it to hang on to concepts from the past like wristwatches and glasses? Surely we should let go of those ideas and move forward? So there's a lot of good ideas from the past. You just got to, and also you have to often uh, take people through the past to get them to the future. Uh, it's that kind of horseless carriage thinking. If you look at the first car that was invented, it basically looked like, and I've actually got a photo, it's in Legoside, that shows you the two things next to each other. The first car and a horse and carriage of that time. And basically, they took a car, or they took a carriage, they took the horses off it, they put an engine in it, and then they utilized a term called horsepower, so people would understand how many horses were pulling that, that, that buggy or that carriage. So... It made the transition extremely easy and comfortable for people because they started with something they knew, stepped there, and then went forward from there, allowed them to change it. To me, the modern day example of the horse's carriage was the first iPhone. I remember all of us sitting around when the first iPhone came out and we were all blogged about it and we we're talking about how this was not this was a crappy smartphone and that my Nokia 9000 or my, I think it was a Sony Ericsson W800 old were much better smartphones. Only to realize a year later that we'd been duped because the iPhone was not the world's best smartphone. It was a very bad smartphone, but it wasn't trying to be. What it was was the world's best feature phone. They took basic, the very, very basic iterations of what people knew a phone to do. They added one thing to it, like a, a, a front touchscreen, but everything else was just what you would do with your phone. They didn't try and get the 5% geek crowd. They tried to get the 95% everybody crowd. And they did that so well. Once they had you there, then what they did is they introduced a small little thing that you were already used to. So they'd introduce you to the idea of buying music through an application called iTunes. Now you were used to that. Then they said, well, you know what? We'll allow you to do something you're already used to, another horse's carriage, and we'll allow you to buy music uh, on your phone through iTunes. Then they got you there. And then the final step was to turn around and say, well, you already trust buying music. You now trust buying music on your phone. Why don't we allow you to buy an app on your phone using the exact same system? They horseless carriaged you three steps of the way, and then they launched a platform, and then it became the world's best smartphone simply because of how easily they got you there. And that's what the watch will do as well. It's, it's got to be slowly, it's got to be slowly, slowly catchy monkey. First, give them a watch on their wrist that is digital. Then add one or two features that seem like a, a nice way of doing things. Then maybe add some degree of uh, paying for goods or, or something that allows you to pay for goods using your watch, maybe a fingerprint scanner on the watch itself, and then allow you to start paying for things absolutely by just touching your wrist. So, so I think it's a, it's a journey. And I think the way that we have to get into that journey is by providing people with something safe and comfortable to start with. Remember, nobody cares about the 5%, the early adopters. They're a means to an end. The real money is in with, you know, I knew that Apple had won when my mom bought one about an iPhone. 
because that late majority that everybody looks at like it's uh, you know the end of the journey that late majority is a full 50% of the market okay so they're good reasons to keep things on our wrist it's a pretty good spot for information and maybe glasses are an obvious place to start putting things in your field of view because that's what glasses do they get between you and the rest of the world and they help you see it better but how long do these ideas carry on for and how do we move beyond them so uh, there's a there's a kind of three parts to that. The the first thing, I just as an observation, I think the one thing that the LG has done better, an interesting thing for me, amazing thing for me is LG knows it's there's no place on that watch. I'm not sure if you've seen it up close where it says LG. LG understands that as a brand, they may be sexy enough to go on a telephone, and even that's debatable. But they they are self aware enough to know that they're nowhere near sexy enough to go onto a watch. A watch is a completely different, it's not an electronic gadget, it is a status symbol first. And you don't put your big LG logo all over it. So this tells you something about the mindset of the user. In that regard, I think LG has done a better job of creating a horse's carriage. The LG G Watch R looks a lot more like a watch, than, whereas the, uh, the iWatch looks like something out of a Star Trek episode. What are those things called that you used to have on their wrists? Uh, the communicator? which was something they held in their hand. It looked like a Motorola StarTac, but I think there was a wrist version as well. So the iWatch actually looks more like that. The G-Watch R looks more like a watch. I think they did that really well. The, as for wearables, I actually think this is the first wearable that actually matters. Everything else has been practice and a bit of bullshit. I've bought so many of these little track yourself running, track yourself walking, only to realizing it's is providing me with a false sense of data because it's providing me with the passive data that your body writes off anyway. Uh, it, it hadn't changed my behavior at all. It gave me a lot of useless information. Like the first day you wake up and you learn how many times you turned at night, that feels really amazing. The second time, it's kind of a novelty to track it. And then thereafter, it's just, it's just crap that bores you. So up to now, this is the first wearable that has provided me with any information. And the reason it works is because wearables have been around for 100 years and they're called wristwatches. And this was just a wristwatch. And that's what it started with. And then it gave me a little bit more things. It gave me a little bit more stuff. And then the third most important part of the answer is one that I forgot because I've been talking for so long. <laughs> well, best we give you a break then. But thanks for chatting to us and for changing my mind a little bit about wearable computers, smartwatches at least. You know what the truth is? I'm not sure this is the next best thing, but I think it's certainly paving the way. And I think if you want to make anything smart, start off with its function. If you want to make a smart belt that tracks your weight, start off with a really nice belt. Make it be what it is and then build on it from there. That's how you're going to get your consumer to the next step. Before we said goodbye, Rich also had something to add about wow factors that really warmed my heart. The wow factor now is design. Aha, there you go. And as somebody who has to design things all the time, I concur. Big thanks to Rich Mulholland for chatting to us on Binary. Check out his book, Legacide, available wherever you find good books, I guess. So before I sign off for this episode, I had to get the opinions of somebody who has some of the most unusual habits relating to technology of uh, anybody I know. And that's my friend Sam Beckbessinger, who also hosts the show Take Back the Day with me. Sam doesn't do notifications. I try to get hold of her using various asynchronous communications methods, and it just never works. I have to go and physically seek her out. 
uh, and that's pretty much the only way to get Sam's attention. So I generally disable all the notifications on my phone and I can't imagine a scenario in which I wouldn't do the same thing on my watch. I think it's like an emotional energy preservation thing because the world is, I don't know, filled with so much uh, noise, I guess. Um, I think it's very deliberate, honestly. Like I like to just throw up my hands and be like, oh no, I'm just bad at communication. Sorry, all my friends. Um, but I think the reality is that it's quite deliberate. Like not like I don't want to talk to Simon, so therefore I'm not going to answer to Simon. It's that um, <laughs> it's like a self-imposed bubble, I, I guess. Um, and I think it's from emotional stress, actually, is that talking to humans, even if it's a very low level, it's like this is emotionally a thing that's going to stimulate some kind of emotion. Who got time for emotions? Ain't nobody got time for that shit. So, yeah, I think that's why I do have a weird relationship with notifications. So there you have it. And that's it for the first episode of Binary. Thanks for listening. A reminder to subscribe to the show if you haven't already. We're available on iTunes via RSS. Uh, You can find more details at our website, binary.fm. Also check out my Patreon page, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. Search for Simon Dingle or Binary. We're a listener-supported show and Patreon is one of the ways we do that. Otherwise, you can find ways to contribute to the show at our website. In the show, you heard music from Dogsent, GMZ and Bensound. You can find links to the artist pages and more information on the website. By now, the message should be loud and clear. Visit our website, binary.fm. And of course, you'll also find out more about the voices you heard in this episode. Thanks again to Tom Merritt, Richard Mulholland and Sam Beckbessinger. We'll be back soon with another episode. I'm Simon Dingle and this is Binary. Binary.